and maybe they don't think about why it is that they find themselves walking there, but will never find themselves walking down 140 from Stop and Shop to Elizabeth Bagels. Um, and that's the, these principles of walkability. That's these principles of human-centered design. Uh, Steve Sherlock here for Franklin Matters, Franklin Public Radio, anywhere on the internet, WFPR.FM, and in the local Franklin Mass radio dial, FM dial 102.9, here in studio today for another of our continuing discussions around Franklin for All, Franklin zoning, what we can do to improve downtown. We've got a group of folks here, Melanie Hamblin from the town council. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Kobe Frangelo, also from the town council. Morning. Hi, everyone. Brad Chaffee, local developer and Franklin resident. How's it going? Morning. And Chancellor Ed Augustus from Dean College. Welcome. Good morning, everyone. And we're going to talk arts and culture today and weave it into the big discussion overall. Yeah, so thank, thanks for having us this morning, Steve. I think uh, we're, I think, well, this is number five. We're keeping track. I think it's number five number in the series. Number five of our series of um, zoning podcasts. And um, one of the things that recently has happened at the downtown partnership meeting at Augustus gave a talk about what he did in Worcester to bring public art and uh, make, create a more walkable city. Um, and so that... Kobe and I were both there, and Brad was there as well, and we were very excited about um, this discussion, and we wanted to make sure that more people heard about it and knew what was happening. And also, during the Franklin for All project, one of the things people talked about is that they wanted a more walkable town. They wanted to be able to go downtown. They wanted places um, that they could slow down and enjoy and maybe have an ice cream and um and, and it's this feeling of of um excitement but also uh, there's a calmness to it as well like you could go see art and you could just slow down and maybe sit down um there's a in front of the near the dean building where birchwood bakery is there's an area there that you can sit and look at look at some of the murals of the ladybug trail and it's just, how do we think about and design the town for people, not just for cars, right? So I think most of the time we think about, let's get people through the town and let's get them in a place where they can park. And, and it's not about once you park your car, how do you get around the town safely? And how do you um, enjoy your time while you're walking? How can we slow people down? And let them actually notice all the cool historic things we have in downtown. And um, and so we thought that it would be kind of fun to have a discussion about that. And maybe um, there's a couple of people here today with us that actually know how to design and how to think about people first. And Chancellor, if you could just introduce yourself, like why, why you're here, went to this conversation um, and, and where you came from before um, and sort of setting that up, that would be great. I won't do an Admiral Stockdale. Why am I here? Who am I? Uh, <laughs> kind of um, so folks may or may not know that I'm, I'm the former city manager of Worcester. Um, I was in that role for about nine years before I came to Dean College uh, as chancellor. And 
you probably know Worcester is the second largest city in New England. It's a population of close to 210,000. It's actually the highest population in the 300 year history of the community uh, as of this last census. So people are voting with their feet uh, in terms of moving to Worcester and many of our 35,000 college students who come to Worcester to one of the great higher ed institutions are increasingly thinking about staying because they really fall in love with the city and the community and get connected. Uh, and that was always a big conversation we would have. How do you get these young people who are you know, getting a great education at Holy Cross or WPI or Assumption College to say, hey, I want to stay in Worcester? Uh, because a lot of times they would immediately say, all right, I'm out of here. I've got a great education, but I'm going to go make my life in Boston or New York or, or wherever it may be. And, you know, that was a, a conversation the city had to have with itself. Like, how do we create a place that our own indigenous kind of population wants to stay and sees opportunities to stay? to raise a family, to have a career, to have diversified kind of job opportunities, as well as people who discover Worcester through whatever means, whether it be coming to school or visiting, going to the DCU or now to Polar Park or wherever else and fall in love with the city and say, this is the place I want to be because it has an urban feel to it. It has all of the amenities that I'm looking for in a city. Um, but it also has some of the charms and neighborhoods that have characteristics that meet all sorts of different needs and demands. And um, Worcester historically had been a city that was heavy industrial manufacturing. It was a powerhouse yes. uh, in the 19th century and for the first half of the 20th century, certainly through World War II, you'd have heavy um, steel manufacturing, wire manufacturing, machine parts, uh, airplane parts mm -hmm. that were manufactured there three shifts a day. Yes. Um, thousands of people going with their lunch buckets uh, mm -hmm. into uh, these factories, making a really good living, often getting a pension, going home, being able to take care of themselves and their families. But over time, those jobs started going away. Uh, some of them went south, some of them went overseas, and was they had to figure out how to reinvent itself for the modern economy, for the knowledge-based economy. And what better way to do that than take advantage of the 10 colleges and universities that were in the mm -hmm. cities you know, boundaries. Mm -hmm. And so things like the state's medical school, UMass Medical, was the perfect way to try to develop a life science cluster in Worcester, uh, to take the research and the brains that were on that campus and turn them into startups and incubators and companies. And that's why you've got about 1,800 people going to work at AbbVie. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not making barbed wire anymore or machine parts, but they're making Humera. Uh, or they're making uh, insulin, or they're making other products that Abby makes uh, to keep biologics, by, by and large, that keep people uh, healthy and alive. And so, you know, that's was kind of Worcester's challenge, figure out how to position ourselves for the modern economy, and what were our assets, take stock of that, and how do you use those assets to position yourself? And, um, and as that conversation went on, as we had some success in that, we talk about the quality of life. You talk about how what people are looking for in the community they want to live in, where people increasingly, because of the ability to work from home or the ability to work a couple of days from home, people have more flexibility where they live than they've ever had before. Mm -hmm. uh, and so communities have to compete mm -hmm. because people have options. They're not stuck there because that's where the factory is or that's where the business is. Uh, and so if you're going to compete, you got to up your game and you got to think about 
what do I offer people in terms of quality of life? Not just housing stock, although that's obviously critical, but amenities, things, quality of schools, parks, public spaces, things to do, things to do on the weekend. Um, those are what people are looking for. And people will vote with their feet uh, because they can. And Brad, from your perspective, you've certainly been developing and growing your base and developing here within Franklin as well. Yes, uh, trying. Um, I, I, you know, I guess just to go to Ed's point, I think um, from our standpoint is, it, you know, trying to really help change the downtown. Um, I always find it very unique that we have two train stops and a college and very interesting for a town to have that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the growth that's been downtown and what people want to see hasn't, 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 hasn't come to life yet. Um, and I think sometimes people will get stuck outside of things, maybe outside the downtown that maybe they're not um, as pleased or don't understand or, you know, getting all the right facts. So I think it's a huge opportunity. I know from, from my company and all the people that we work with and everyone in the community we work with, I think there's a lot of um, kind of momentum towards that. And there has been for a while, but I think it's going to pop. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, yes. really interested to kind of talk today to kind of, Kind of get into some of those ideas, see, see the downtown and kind of taking all those those key features that not a lot of towns in the suburbs really have that. So I think it's an important thing we have that we capitalize on. I think that's a great point that um, one of the reasons why I moved to Franklin when we first walked, we first came through Franklin was Dean. You know, you go downtown and there's this beautiful building with the green and then there's the library across the street and the green, the, down, the green right down there, like that area to me is like, I just like feel at home there. Mm -hmm. um, I love, I love a college, the feel of a college community. I used to work at Brandeis um, and then, and, and just being around young people and people with new ideas all the time. It's just really, to me, it's really exciting. It makes, it, it gives, um, me joy but it also is part of a quality of life thing um to have that kind of area around us can i just amplify one thing brad said because i think it's yeah. really important you know you can learn from other communities and see what they've done and get right. some ideas you know and some concepts and stuff but but you've got to be real and authentic to yourself mm -hmm. and so take stock of what you have and you've got a lot here in franklin you've got the train stop you've got the college you've got a pretty compact downtown area. So you've got a lot of assets. So it doesn't, don't, don't chase what Worcester did or mm -hmm. what, you know, Northampton did or somebody else did. Learn from it and take the relevant, you know, lessons, but be authentic to who you are as a community and, and build on the assets you have. That's kind of the point I was making about the transition in economies was to figure out, all right, we've got these colleges. How do we use those to attract new businesses right. that were, you know, more futuristic than heavy manufacturing in Worcester's history. So, you know, don't don't think like, oh my God, we've got to go do all these other things, other communities. We've got a lot here. Build on that. Figure out how to connect the dots with those pieces. And I think to give a plug to listeners if they hadn't heard the prior episode, I think we spent a bunch of time around the process. And Brad, you certainly have spent time listening and then changing your proposals in order to meet the requirements, which I think is the same point we're trying to emphasize here as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, we went through this, I guess, in the last podcast, uh, obviously the timing, special permits, how long it takes to, you know, uh, have 
hire an architect, an engineer, then we get into permitting. All of a sudden that changes from if there's too much opinion or it's too open-ended. It takes more time to re-engineering, costs more money to do that. All of a sudden now nothing gets done and you might be left with something that is a balance that no one really likes, right? Mm-hmm. It's, so I think working more on the front end, knowing, and I think that's really what's happening on the planning board level and that's knowing a little better. We can't always know exactly, but having a little more of a target makes the developers aim for something, right? You can condense that time, which saves them money and hopefully that money can go to something else like art. They'll be more amenable to paying for something that the community would like to see instead of being in there for two years and just spending money on redesigning something over and over and over, ultimately nothing in the end of it. Right. So I think, you know, if you can get the right developers and work with them and tell them what you need, hopefully that's when you can get a benefit with the community level stuff they want to. I think, well, can I just like, one of the things that I think just to connect these two thoughts that we just had, right, was to, that we want to put together something that makes it easier for builders to understand what we want, but we also have to make it um, specifically from Franklin. Yes. Right. So that, and that's what I think we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And, um, but let's throw it to Kobe. <laughs> but the, the key part of that is knowing what we want. And I think that um, it's hard to, uh, we sometimes ask people, okay, well, do you, what size, what size buildings do you want? Or what, uh, you know, what are the exact uses of buildings that you want? And honestly, we're not very good. If you're not thinking about design and, and planning uh, a lot, uh, we as humans aren't very good at knowing exactly what it is, what we want. It's a lot of, you, you know, it when you see it, um, you know, it when you're there. And I think a lot of people, um, do really enjoy our downtown uh, block, and maybe they don't think about why it is that they find themselves walking there, but will never find themselves walking down 140 from Stop and Shop to Elizabeth's Bagels. Um, and that's the, these principles of walkability. That's these principles of human-centered design. Um, it's not enough just to have things that you want to go to. It needs to be in a space that's uh, enticing, that's uh, comfortable, um, that's convenient, that's useful uh, for you to make the walk, right? The, the four main principles of, of, of walkability from Jeff's spec are, are useful, safe, comfortable, and interesting. And I think uh, we often talk about uh, that useful piece, right? Uh, that's, you know, does it make sense? Like, would I ever want to go from my place to get something? Or to go to a place, right? I don't want it to do it. We don't want to encourage people uh, to do it just as a, oh, I want to go out and go for a stroll. So like, oh, no, I need to get something. I need to, I need to get to school. I need to get to, I need to pick up uh, food or groceries. Um, is it safe? So are you safe from, comfort, from uh, cars? Can you cross streets safely? And we've made improvements on that. That's a little different. I like that he, that he um, separates that a little from comfortable. Right, you could be safe. We have sidewalks down 140. I don't think the car's ever going up on the sidewalk, but you certainly don't feel comfortable when you got cars going 40 miles per hour, uh, 50 miles per hour, uh, zipping by you and, and, and uh, changing lanes. That's a huge part. And one of those things that we talk about with uh, street frontage and sort of uh, some, some uh, building height relative to street width is that if you feel like you're in this enclosed space where you can sort of see 
the ends of uh, everything in front of you and it's not this ongoing thing, then you start to feel uh, a little more comfortable. And the last one's interesting. And, and that's really, um, and I think Worcester's done a good job pushing forward uh, all of these, but especially made that interesting piece, right? It's not enough just to be uh, safe and, and get you where you want to go. Um, we actually want that to be something that you want to do. That's a desirable thing to do because there's nice things to look at um, because you might stop and, and catch something that you hadn't seen before. Uh, and that's where those ideas of public art installations uh, come in. That's where uh, that idea of more innovative, um, you know, what it places to sit or um, the, the food trucks or street festivals or, you know, whatever it is that, you know, uh, you never know what's around the corner. And, and that, that's really where um, we're looking to get to. I'd be interested in sort of uh, being able to share some of the key projects uh, in Worcester that switched their mindset to be more human-centered um, in, in their design. Sure. <clears throat> I think just two quick things to add to that. Part of why I think that 146 example is a really good one and part of why, even though you've got sidewalks, you've also got dozens of, of curb cuts that you have to walk along that sidewalk, which is like walking a landmines, right? Because sure. there's cars that are in and out, in yeah. and out constantly. So you've got to be paying lines. attention. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to be walking around or between cars because they're in and out because these setback kind of fast food or other stores with a sea of parking in front of them or around them. Mm -hmm. So you're competing. You're you get the message very clearly. This really wasn't meant for you. This was meant for the cars. Uh, and I'm out of place. I'm the fish out of water mm -hmm. here if I'm walking up amongst that. And I think what you want to try to do is flip that script if you at all can. The other thing I would add to your list of things interesting, part of what makes it interesting and safe is that is street trees. You almost couldn't do enough of planting of street trees. There's huge environmental benefits, which we all probably, uh, you know, intuitively know. But they are part of creating an aesthetic, uh, creating an atmosphere, creating a sound buffer, creating an ambiance. All of those great benefits come from public shade trees. You and know, with physical that. buffer too. That physical buffer, exactly. Mm -hmm. So if you think about a lot of spaces that you really like to explore, there's usually a, an overabundance of uh, public um, trees. Yeah. So add that to the mix. I think, you know, I was thinking when I was negotiating with the Red Sox about relocating from Kentucky to Worcester, honestly, there are 18 different cities around New England that were courting them. And I think Larry Lakina would say this, and I, I I offer this up now. I think the reason we ended up with it is because Larry and I kind of connected on a shared vision. And if you think about Larry Lacchino and Janet Marie Smith, Janet Marie Smith is the architect who has worked with Larry on all the ballparks that they've done together. And they started with Camden Yards in the Inner Harbor of Baltimore. And that architectural uh, ballpark stadiums there's the period before Camden Yards, and then there's the period after. Yeah. Um, the period before Camden Yards was you would build on the edge of a city uh, this big spaceship 
mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that kind of descended in this open field or this open area. Mm-hmm. And it was surrounded by tens of thousands of cars. Yeah. And so what you do is you come, you park, you walk a million miles, you go into the facility, uh, you watch the game or whatever, and then you try to find your car, you wait for hours to get out of there, and then you go your own way. You go home or you go somewhere else after the game. Whereas the Inner Harbor, they kind of went back to that old concept, which Fenway is a, Still has. Wrigley is a, you know, they're kind of uh, testimonies to, was designed in an urban environment where you were kind of connecting the existing city to those spaces and each was feeding off the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when we looked at spots in Worcester to potentially put the ballpark, I showed them a spot that was physically next to our canal district, which organically had been kind of repositioning itself. It was a lot of old factories and old kind of mishmash of buildings that were turning themselves into bakeries and, you know, antique collectives and little restaurants and shops and stuff. So it it was already kind of organically turning into a place you wanted to spend part Mm -hmm. of Saturday morning, putting around and just seeing what was there. And then now to put the ballpark next to it and have five streets that physically connected it one block off that we block off when there are games. So they're just pedestrian only. So they're nice, safe ways to walk to and from those stores in the ballpark. It's like, hey, Worcester's little well-kept secret. Hey, each game, 10,000 of our neighbors in the southern New England area come and discover all the things around Mm -hmm. here uh, while you're visiting the ballpark. So that is so important when you know what you want as a community and can articulate that. And it doesn't mean every little, you want to be flexible enough that innovation has room and, right. and new things that come on, you've got space for that. But when you kind of know, when you have a vision for what you want for your community and you can articulate it to developers, as Brad said, developers like the stock market like predictability, <laughs> right? They don't like who knows what tomorrow's going to be yeah. right? Uh, because that's dollars. That's money that I'm going to have to spend chasing this design or this feedback that contradicts another feedback. And so when the community knows you're taking some of the ambiguity, some of the risk uh, out of what a developer would have to put on the table to do a project in your community, and you're going to get what you want that fits into this broader vision. If you want density and walkability and all the things that Colby kind of outlined, articulate that in your planning documents and in your process. I, I assume you guys have this. Or what, do we have something called the uh, uh, interdepartmental uh, team where when a developer comes in, before you meet with anybody separately, you're meeting with the city planner, you're mm-hmm. meeting with the fire department, right. you're meeting with right. code. So that everybody, because sometimes you get contradictory things, because sure, sometimes sure. codes are not black and white. They're gray, and one inspector or sure. one commissioner might interpret it one way. But if you've got a can-do attitude and everybody's hearing each other, they find ways within the appropriate flexibilities of the code and the interpretation that they get to yes. Uh, mm-hmm. And that should be the goal of the community. Yeah, I think to your question, from my understanding, that's the tech review meeting that happens on Wednesdays when needed, and it's the yes. department heads. I don't know the planning board's involved, but at least it's all the department heads, which is the, the plan, key the areas. The town planner is there. The town, town planner, planner is at least yeah. there. So yeah. 
that's bringing together the different parties to say, yeah, this can work, or maybe consider this, maybe consider that. And I've understood that those who have gone through that, it's been a better process. And there are some people who, for some, for whatever reason, how come I didn't know that beforehand? They're wishing they had gone through yeah. it. So. And I think there's another process, the design review as well, that we discussed that a little bit. And that I had been kind of below the radar in terms yeah. of, and I know of it because for people who have listened to me for years, I've told, I followed the money. So town council, school committee, FinCom, and then the subcommittees, there's this other planning board, CONCOM, uh, uh, Conservation Commission, Zoning Board of Appeal, and Design Review that I just don't have the bandwidth to follow, but I'll also put a plug in. If anybody's interested and wants to do that, we'll talk because you can either take one and I'll switch over. I can train you to do that. There's a need for that because right. that is yeah. really critical to enhancing the vision that we're developing as to what do we want to be when we grow up? Yeah. And I think that uh, and a lot of people know about it because they, they review sign design. Primarily. So sign, primarily. But there's also another, another part of it um, that Brad can speak to, but I think that this needs definitely needs to be included and brought in the group and their regulations that they follow need to be brought into this conversation so that the design review approves the things that people want to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess we'll off that now. Um, yeah. I mean, the design review really is that the aesthetics, right? Materials, which we touched upon in the last one, are really a little bit, how yes, things get absolutely. lighter because of cost of construction, right? Sure. Look at it as, as weight, things we built right. in the 50s with bricks and stuff like that. You can't build today. It's too expensive. So everything gets lighter, lighter, lighter. So how do you keep light materials and still make something that's very attractive? And I think that's been a little challenge probably in the last two decades that come up. But design review, um, you know, like all boards is volunteer. And I think that we have a really strong design review board right now. And they recommend to the planning board I think sometimes that's where it gets lost a little bit and how much weight the planning board actually looks at that as, oh, it's just a it's, you know, recommendation. Here's, our, mm -hmm. here's what we want to see. So I think if a little more power on the design review, because that's that's what their focus is, right? They're going to focus a little bit on, they ask about, it's lighting, it's trees, it's landscaping, it's the aesthetics the of the ambience. building. That's what they're yeah. there to look at and to really make sure it goes. So I think maybe not so, because we got into this to a more bylaws and all that, but almost there's a process that, that goes into, and I can't tell you how many times I've gotten approved. We love it. I go to the planning board now, it's changed. Then I go back to them. They say, well, I guess we like this one too. Then I go back to the planning board and it changes. I've done this four times in the last phase that it took me two and a half years of plan. That's frustrating. And then you get to the point as well, I was like, well, you know what? I'm just going to do something now because now I'm just but, funds and yeah. spending and it's going nowhere and you know, those carrying costs for those two and right. a half years all uh, of it and is, the, you're not getting any return on as much as you should yeah yeah, yeah and, and then you can't have your open space so you're not, like like yeah. there was one thing that brad had that he wanted to have an outdoor like a large chess mat board or something for people to walk to a little pop-up uh shop kind of uh metal storage yeah, yeah. You know, I'll get that now. <laughs> in a nice way but that's very trendy yeah, right the metal storage the, container uh, and yeah. you know place just the boom here you go yeah so, so you know it's um it's frustrating i think for the builder and but it's also i i'm gonna um kobe you can like tell me if i'm wrong but i think it's frustrating for both kobe and i because this is the kind of stuff we want to see 
I think it's the stuff that the town wants to see, uh, people, the residents. And it's like, how do, you know, we're working towards, uh, we're getting there uh, to get us all together and marching in the same, you know, like going to the same point. But, um, and so it's just really trying to get more and more people to come along with that, I guess, is what I think. But Kobe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that's, the, that's the ultimate uh, tough piece is the current process heavily favors last minute input from direct abutting neighbors. And when you have a process where things are decided, you know, what comes in and what comes out is decided at the last minute by abutting neighbors, you're more likely, not always, but you're more likely to dissuade uh, projects that are that have any potential to have uh, spillover uh, effects on uh, neighbors. And what we're trying to do through the Franklin for All process is say, we, public input is absolutely important to this process. How much of that public input can we push to the beginning of the conversation? Where we're setting up our rules to say, what do we want the town to look like, as opposed to looking at every individual parcel? Because we just look at individual, individual parcels, it's going to lead to those long conversations. Oh, can we add this? Can we add this? Do we really need that? Do we really need that? Beep, 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 beep back. And now we end up with a parcel that the town itself wouldn't have uh, been in favor of, but it was safer for the, the most immediate uh, people. So yeah, this entire conversation is how do we move the, the large public input to what is our vision? What do we want uh, the town to look like? And then how easy can we make it for, uh, de for developers who are willing to meet that vision to come in and uh, produce buildings or renovate buildings uh, in a way uh, that we enjoy? And if they can, let's invite them in and, and take away uh, roadblocks uh, from uh, from their way. Uh, and, and again, this is all just bringing me back to, you know, on an individual scale, uh, something like, like, I, I bet if you ask uh, the, you know, business next to the, or the, the housing next to the ballpark, uh, if they wanted uh, more parking, they would have said, you need 10,000 more units, uh, you know, parking spaces. Um, because, you know, that's, that's them. Uh, protecting their turf uh, but we know that the city was better for it that they ended up uh being better for it uh, you know, the strongest correlation there's an map or sorry uh, mass housing partnership um did a study correlating walkability there's a walk score if you go online uh, you can find a walk score which is a pretty good job um you know determining a city's uh walkability and it correlated that with um just assess value uh, of homes per acre and by far the most valuable the more valuable the place was the more walkable it was or the more walkable it was the more valuable the places that's people moving with their feet toward places um, that are walkable and enjoyable um, it raises the value of the place so we know that uh, this is true we hear it in franklin where are your favorite parcels of town it's those um more more walkable places how can we set out uh you know sort of standards from the beginning that uh, invite that and make that a little easier and maybe even make it a little harder uh to uh produce some of the stuff that we don't want um you know which are you know quickly 
changing large scale multifamily right next to residential and certainly, you know, sprawling single family uh, developments that just add, add to our infrastructure uh, liabilities. Uh, on the idea of competing, I, I just listened to a, uh, a podcast and it was talking about the, the mayor from Oklahoma City uh, was they, they were trying to compete to get, you know, he was trying to spur economic development. And the biggest tool that they were doing was like, let's just give uh, uh, tax cuts away to, to attract people. And he was trying to attract all these big uh, companies to uh, move to the city and just kept giving away tax cuts and making big deals. Uh, and they kept saying no. And he finally asked one of them, a real big one that came to town. And they're like, honestly, we're a little embarrassed to tell you, but... The, the people we went to check out the place just said, we can't see ourselves living here. And, and we see that time and time again, that uh, our ability to attract uh, businesses um, is more than in favorable taxes. It's, is it a place that their employees uh, would want to live? And that's another place um, why, why it's important that we're um, sort of competing to, to attract people. If, if I could, you know, Again, I, I, I love having uh, the chancellor here and, I'm, and we're so lucky. If I, if I could ask you to share the story or sort of your mindset in thinking about uh, the library and the arts center um, and, and how because those buildings stayed. You know, it's one thing to add a new walkable building. That's very important. How did you shift your mindset on the library uh, and, the, and the arts center uh, toward one that used the same exact assets but made it much more enjoyable and inviting uh, for for people to uh, come in. But. Yeah, and then in downtown Worcester is the main uh, Worcester Public Library. Uh, it's literally a block long. Uh, it was designed in the same brutalist architecture that you see mm -hmm. Worcester's police station and as well as Boston City Hall and other buildings that we love to hate. Um, 20 years ago, the city did some renovations to it and tried to soften it a little bit and did a decent job. Uh, but they had left what I thought was a huge urban design mistake, which was there was a door facing the parking lot because that was the assumption, right? Everybody was going to be mm -hmm. coming by car and needed a quick, easy uh, access to the building from the parking lot. Then there was one on the side, which was kind of a side street and kind of facing dead buildings on the other side. So it was dark. It was dank, and there was an overhang that folks theoretically could be protected from the elements when they went, but became a place where all smokers hung out. Oh. And <laughs> kids. Nobody wanted nice to go to through do, that door. And sometimes homeless people would hang out. And so it became foreboding if you were a mom with a stroller with your infant in there. Mm -hmm. You didn't want to walk through all of that. Uh, you were kind of intimidated with an older person. So that wasn't for you. And so what we said is, well, the front door of the, the front part of the building should be the entrance because that looks into the common. It's on the footpath now to the ballpark, to the canal district, to where a lot of the action is. So when we decided to redesign, we decided to put a front door on uh, and fix that. And we have 700,000 visitors to the Worcester Public Library annually. It's a huge driver of people to the downtown Let's put some number of those hundreds of thousands of people into the front door, walking by 
the brew coffee place, walking by some of the businesses that we're trying to get to spring up in downtown. Mm-hmm. If I put two more parking places, they would get two more parkers there, you know, every half hour or so. But if I put destinations that people wanted and easy ways to get there, I'm going to put dozens and dozens of people walking by their business uh, that are potential customers that smell the coffee or see Mm -hmm. what's in the window or whatever, and that make them want to walk in. And then you don't, you're not a city of islands. This is one of my biggest kind of things. You don't want to be a city of islands or community of islands where, all right, I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to go down to, you know, this bakery in the morning and get my coffee. And then I got to get my car and then I got to go someplace else because I got to go to the bank. And then I got to get in my car and I got to go somewhere else to get my dry cleaning. I got to get back in the car. That's the antithesis of community. That means we're all separated from each other. We're all in our little, you know, machines isolated from each other, whereas a community is a place where I can do all of that. Maybe I do have to drive to the destination, uh, but there's parking maybe set back from the buildings, not right on the front. I don't necessarily expect to park right in front of where I want to start my stuff, but I park somewhere else, but I walk and I get everything done I need and I see people I know. And to Colby's point, I see murals or new public art or activated public spaces where there's somebody performing on Saturday morning or there's a pop-up farmer's market or there's a push cart selling different kinds of interesting coffees or whatever it may be, but there's just community there. Mm -hmm. And I'm not by myself. And when you are not by yourself, you feel safe because you are safe. There's other people around you. If something happens and you feel like I'm part of an active, vibrant community, which is, I think, at the end of the day, what people want. They want that sense of vitality, that sense of energy. Uh, And if you think about the places you like to go and spend a whole Saturday, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Portland, Maine, Northampton, even parts of Boston, those are places where dump your car, you get there, you dump your car, and then you walk. Right. And you walk around and you do all sorts of things. You eat, you socialize, you shop, you go see some entertainment. And the, the walk is part of the experience. It's part of what you went there to do is to see the people around you and sure. see what was going on. And, uh, that's, I think, what you want to create. And you're exactly right. The businesses will push back and say, oh, my God, I need those spaces in front. Well, we need 50 more spaces. You need enough parking in the area. I'm not going to be, you know, unrealistic, but once you get people there, you've got to get them to be a little bit more comfortable to walk a few blocks. Yeah. You you don't shouldn't expect it right in front of your entrance of mm-hmm. your store. Um, half the time, those are taken up unless you've got good parking regulations by the employees who sit there all day and right. those spots, and they're <laughs> they're taking them up from mm-hmm. your customers. You want those spaces. 15 minute, 30 minute, you want mm-hmm. them to turn over depending on the nature of the businesses because right. you want that kind of uh, yeah. flexibility. So I think it's just thinking about what you like. And, and this is probably as common as it gets for people to tell, what do you like for a yeah. Saturday that you're hanging out with your friends, your family? Uh, well, how does that get created? Work back from the vision of where you'd like to be, where you spend a, a nice Saturday. What does that look like compared to where we are? What would we need to do to make that happen? I think one of the things that I um, 
that I worry about or wonder about is is the is the comfortable part of the walk that Kobe mentioned. Um, like you, you can do it safely, but it's that com it's that um, feeling at home, feeling comfortable while you're walking. And um, we, when I look at downtown, I think, well, like I want the, I don't want to see the parking lots in the front. I want to see the, you know, buildings or the public art up in front. But it's also, to me, it seems like we don't have enough space mm. to get that comfort factor. And, and so I'm like, well, what can we do creatively um, with the space we have to make it more comfortable for people? So kind of a thought on that. Yeah. Does having more people living downtown naturally make that happen? I guess, uh, you know, even from maybe a, a, a student perspective, right? How do we get more students to be more involved in downtown? It's people walking, it's things happening. And I always feel like you have to bring kind of the people first. A lot of our small developments, people walk their dogs, they're moving around. Mm -hmm. And maybe the rest of it in my kind of thought process kind of happens with that, right? Sure. So it gets more people see people, the more comfortable they are, kind of psychological, as we talked about kind of earlier. So I, I don't know if that's that first step. Density, density, density. Right? Yeah. So that's I, that's that's your watchword. I, like that. I love it. Uh, I, which we, I, 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 I want to say I love that, right? That's huge, and it's very unintuitive. Uh, this is something that, you know, I, I the chancellor in his meeting, um, uh, reference or, or cited Jane Jacobs, uh, which you know brought the biggest smile on uh, on my face that, that morning. Um, if you don't know, Jane Jacobs um, was sort of a, a, a pivotal figure in sort of um, questioning the uh, car prioritization uh, development. Uh, she was an activist in, in uh, New York, a journalist, and really just a, a a very thoughtful observer of the world around her. And she was one of the first people to pick up on that somewhat unintuitive thing that the very uh, existence of people um, in an area makes it feel safer. That um, what she called the eyes on the street, that if you um, if you walk down a street uh, and you know your neighbors and they see you there, um, and you have people looking out, then the chance of something happening goes way, way down because, you know, you're never going to do something in a well-lit place where everyone knows everyone is watching out uh, for people. Um, and it's hard to um, it's, it's hard to visualize that sometimes, but we know that that's uh, true. And so adding that central density livens up that place, brings more uh, people. And then even if you don't want to live in that, that's perfectly okay. You're going to reap the benefits of having uh, that space that exists, that's comfortable, um, that's lively. Unless I want to add a point on that, I did want to pull out a few things that uh, the chancellor said in terms of uh, designs. Did, did you have a quick one? Brad, Brad wanted to add something. Okay, just, just while we get into that, something that's going on right now that we're talking about that we all go to is density, right? A yep. big zoning change discussion right now in town, density. Right. So, and I, and I feel we're going the opposite direction of this discussion. And then we can jump in, but this is exactly how we tried to re-envision Worcester's downtown because 
Worcester was doing okay in its neighborhoods and other areas, but its downtown had become a psychological problem for the city right. because it was it was kind of a, a living testimony to Worcester's heyday. Um, and it was like, geez, downtown isn't what it used to be. You'd hear, grow up hearing those stories about how vibrant downtown was and that it wasn't, uh, wasn't vibrant at 530. It was a ghost town. And, you know, we would do listening sessions and stuff, and people said, well, you should bring an Apple store. And I'd be like, why did I think of that? An Apple store. We call up Apple. Tell them we want them to come to that place. Apple isn't going to come to downtown Worcester unless I've got the people that they want. Then, then they'll be rappelling down the side of a mountain to get to Worcester or wherever they think the people who buy Apple products are. Right. So you need the density and then the businesses come to chase the people, right? That's just, that's, a, yeah. that's the, mm-hmm. you don't start with the other one, you start right. with the, the people. Yeah. Uh, and so what we had to do in downtown is say, look, if we want an 18 hour day, we've got to figure out how those people who go home at 5.30 in the afternoon, who worked in the offices, the law firm, city hall, you know, these different things that were downtown, how do we replace them with somebody? What was people living downtown? Yeah, sure. Because we would go home, me work at City Hall. I'd go home at the end of the day to a neighborhood in Worcester, and I was being replaced by people who were coming to the housing that we created in downtown. Some of it was renovating old, underutilized office space. Some of it was parcels that had been parking lots that we turned into housing to get that density, create mm-hmm. that more urban feel. But then all of a sudden, Ruth Chris returned our phone call. <laughs> and now there's a Ruth Chris Steakhouse in downtown Worcester. Uh, and Ray Crush went out. What is there? There's a there's another restaurant that has a roof deck on it. Worcester's first mm. downtown roof deck nice. place. And people yeah. would say, "Oh my God, you're going to compete with Ruth Chris." Ruth Chris would you'd think would say, "Oh my God, I don't want any other restaurants." No, Ruth Chris wants twenty more restaurants. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Right. Don't be afraid of competition. That feeds off itself. That that. This idea, once I get in, I got to pull up the drawbridge and I don't want anybody else like me near me. No, 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 no. You want 50 little boutique shops. You want 50 different restaurants and bakeries and things. They will feed off themselves. Uh, It creates that density, that sense of destination. Um, So in some ways, it is kind of working against people's intuitive reactions. Well, where am I? Is everybody going to park? Uh, geez, there's too many other restaurants here. So some of it is kind of working against that psychology that people have built up over time. What yeah. is in their self-interest or what is in their self-interest? Yeah, and on the one hand, too, you would see it. I, I There's a term I picked up somewhere along the way. It's more co-petition, cooperative competition, because even if it's a great restaurant, whichever one it is, you're not going to go there every single night yeah. because you want some variety. Right. So if you have... 20 restaurants, then you can still have the variety and go somewhere every night, but not to the same place every night. If you're going to that one restaurant and there's 15 others right around there and they've all got people coming in and out, what do you got? Vitality, density, community. You got all those things that you talked about. You got all those other people down there. You're not just that island that we went for the birthday dinner there and then we quickly got in our car and we went back someplace. So, So Kobe, you wanted to add in some of those points. Yeah, because... I, I mean, I love this, right? We're, we're talking about, okay, what it is that, that makes a place uh, enjoyable. And I just want to pick up that, that uh, Chancellor sort of 
breeze through a few elements because we're talking about, okay, yes, we know that we like this, but how, what actually makes uh, a place like that? Um, and we've talked about some of them, um, but I want to pick up on, on a few and just make sure that we um, sort of put an underline under them. One of them was uh, setbacks, that if something's set back too far off the road, um, especially if the parking is now in front of the building, now that's another thing that adds to this uh, discomfort um, walking. It doesn't allow you to window watch, look in, uh, give you something uh, to look at, right? So setbacks are uh, a piece of this as well as parking uh, in, in front versus back. Related to that, uh, uh, door in the front, right? A door facing the street, right? We just had uh, Horace Mann uh, Plaza come in where we have that Horace Mann uh, little parkway. No one's ever there. With the original design, the doors were facing that way. Everyone freaked out. What? Franklin only drives cars. And then we turned the door around uh, to face the cars. And I think we really missed out on, on an opportunity there uh, to really make that a worthwhile uh, walk around that mm -hmm. walk. So those, those doors matter. Window, seeing what's in a window, right? Window transparency and just like large windows on the first floor. Um, that's something that we have control over, you know, uh, asking for and, and um, saying that we want, right? If you have, if you have multiple windows in a row, uh, that's going to attract businesses um, that have things to show um, and, and make sure that they um, have some visual aspect as opposed to what we currently have, which is a lot of closing off of those windows uh, to, you know, put in a mortgage office or, or something like that. Um, the, oh, and, the, and then obviously the, the big one is, is parking minimum. It's the, the biggest one, the single biggest uh, tool that we have um, that's disrupted what was there. If you look at old pictures of Franklin versus now, the single biggest difference is we've taken down um, – more of the buildings that we like and replace them with surface parking lots that disrupt the continuous uh, street frontage um, and overburden our, our downtown. That like willingness to walk a little bit further. If we can get you to walk, park once in our downtown and then walk around, that's all we need. In 2008, we had a parking study that said we have enough parking. 2020, we had a market study that said we had enough parking. The last MAPC study came in and said we have enough parking. We know that we have enough um, parking units currently. I would love to be at a point where we need to add more, and I can't wait to, um, but we know that we have enough currently. Let's not overburden our individual developers when they're coming in and uh, make them produce you know, X amount of more surface parking you know, sort of out of fear of increased traffic because all it's going to do uh, is invite traffic. I think, those are I think the parking thing is so important. We we dealt with that with the ballpark. We built one parking garage, a 300-car parking garage, and that is primarily for the development that was going to come adjacent to the ballpark. It really isn't for ballpark parkers. Not that somebody couldn't park there if they wanted to. We did a map, and within a quarter mile of the ballpark, there were 6,000 publicly available 6,000 6, publicly available wow. parking spots. Because the city had multiple garages, which were walking distance, many of which emptied out at the end of the day because mm -hmm. they were for folks who, you know, worked there. And then, so on the weekends and at night, and quite honestly, that's how I helped figure out how to finance this is the parking because I already had spent the money on the predecessors of mine had spent the money on creating these assets right. that we weren't making any money after five o'clock in the afternoon. But all of a sudden, 
Now somebody's paying me ten or fifteen dollars to park there for the night, for the night, or for a Saturday or Sunday. Sure. So I didn't have any upfront cost. It's just cash that helps pay for our share of the ballpark costs. And they're you know five blocks away, four blocks away, and people want to bargain. Guess what? If you go six blocks away, you only pay five bucks. So again, we'll we'll let you. We got something for everybody. Right. You want to be right on top of it, you're going to pay. You want to be a little further away, we won't. But when a ball game is happening, you see just people coming from every different direction. And we specifically designed the ballpark to be what we call porous. So there wasn't one gate with 10,000 people queued up. Right. Yeah. You could come in from different, which meant the fan experience was better. Sure. Because you weren't thinking about gates or everybody trying to get out of the same area, but you were dispersed. And we were putting you into different neighborhoods and we were putting you in toward different parking assets that we already had. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the, the garage that we built with the state's help, that's supporting the hotel that's going to be coming online and a lab building that's going to be built there. So the employees of the lab building can park in there. The guests of the hotel can park in the garage. That is not really to support the ballpark. It's to support the development that came as a result of the ballpark. Right. Uh, and so that's an important distinction. I always think um, to get back to the density part, you know, as a small business owner, what we need to stay in business is more customers. We need people to walk in the door and um, to have that downtown that people want to see all kinds of things downtown. But if people don't go shop there, there's not going to be anything there. Yeah. And so, um, so it is about density, but it and and about people living close. People that live at Station One Seventeen, I see them walking uh, their dogs every day. People probably am, um, at in the area on the other side of downtown that live um, in Brad's buildings. They walk their dogs. They come out. They're down at the bakery. Um, but we just, and when you're there and you see those people, it's, you do feel comfortable. And that is a huge point. But we just need more of those people, more times of the day. Um, mm -hmm. And, and like all, every day of the week. Yeah. Well, and if you yeah. think on the math side, you're effectively playing the odds, playing percents, right? So if there's X percent and you can figure out whatever the X percent is to be successful, the more people you have, that X is going to get spread over the larger number and it's going to be more people, mm -hmm. right? So it's purely a numbers game. And it goes back to the density question I know Kobe has been on as well, is that it now better leverages and that was also what Chancellor mentioned, too, in terms of better leverage is the existing infrastructure. He already had parking garages. Yeah, I know. So okay. he, he built the park <laughs> to use his garages. Yeah. We already have the water, sewer, et cetera, downtown. We just need to better increase the revenue to utilize that without putting in another pipe, without putting okay. in another, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how it kind of comes together. Thanks, Dave. No, that was the exact point that I, that I wanted to make, right? If we know that we need to grow because we have liabilities that are growing faster than our current revenue, where do we want that growth? We'd rather be in places that support our downtown uh, businesses and don't add to our uh, infrastructure liabilities. Uh, and, and we can do so in a way that's more subtle, that's more incremental and less um, you know, abrupt uh, you know, changes to our downtown. I uh, need to move. I think we're all 
uh, sort of winding down. If I could use this opportunity as a last sort of pitch, um, we, we mentioned uh, Jane Jacobs um, and, and uh, what many people do around uh, her birthday every year is sort of in her honor, humbly observe uh, the town um, or city that they live in uh, and walk around as a, as a group and sort of take in what it is to experience the town and city from a human level. I would love to honor her uh, this year and, and do that with some of you. So just put it on your radar early May. Um, I would love to have a day that we get a, a small group and really just experience uh, some of these things uh, from the ground level and take that time out. Um, thank you very much for, for having me again. These are always fun and, and the best way to wake up. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good it's a good natural ending to the conversation. And again, the conversation clearly because the density discussion is legally going through the process of approvals right now. The conversation will continue. But for today, <laughs> it comes to a nice natural close for us. Thank you all for participating. Chancellor, thanks for spending some time this morning. For the others, obviously, thank you. This has been, um, I hope. For the residents, insightful. It certainly helped me kind of pull some things together. And that's important because if I can help understand what's going on, then hopefully in my role, others should, by listening to this, also be able to come to the point. And if they've got questions, everybody's available to get questions and answers. So, Well, thank you so much, Steve, for having us yet again. Um, and Chancellor, for being here. I, I love the way, Steve, you've, I could see you pull it all together. I could see the aha moment. You were like, oh, yeah, I got it. And um, that was good. So thanks again. Thanks. I want to say the same thing. Great conversation today, guys. So right. thank the opportunity. Thank you. And quick reminder for the listeners, we do this because Franklin matters. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tin Type Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. And by the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.